Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so that you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. So this week, my guest is Jason C. Brown. Now before I get into who Jason C. Brown is and why you should be excited about him, I do have to remind you guys that we are selling the autumn retreat right now. Likely by the time you guys see this, it might be sold out, but there's a small chance that you can jump in and get your, uh, your shot if you sign up today. So don't miss out, get yourself uh, in line for one of our retreats, if not the autumn retreat, then one of our upcoming retreats. Now, on to Jason. Jason is the guy who actually hosted the first ever Evolve Move Play cert. He's a really thoughtful, really interesting guy. He's been coaching uh, kettlebell certs for Equinox, one of the largest, um, gym uh, brands in the world for something like 20 plus years. But he's much more than a kettlebell instructor. He's also a jujitero who's been doing jujitsu for many years and a kind of just amazing geek about physical culture. It was Jason who introduced me to Mike Fitch, for instance, and he introduced me to Margaret Stryker, who's become a huge influence in the way I think about natural movement and many other really interesting topics. Jason has a library around movement that's unlike anybody else that I've met. And this is a really wonderful and fun conversation. We hadn't talked to each other in, in quite a while. So it's a deep dive into really what physical culture can be and what it can mean to people, how it can impact us as a community, how we can understand better our own motivations and how to achieve what we're looking for in physical culture, and even how it impacts us in developing a community and being parents. So I think you guys will love Jason. I think you're gonna, you're gonna wanna see him on the podcast again. So make sure to stay tuned and watch the rest of my episode with Jason and comment and let us know what you'd like us to talk about. So without further ado, Jason C. Brown, thank you. So Jason, it's been a really long time. Rafe, thank you for having me. I'm yeah, excited. absolutely. Yeah. It's been too long. Yeah, um, I you hosted the first ever Evolve Move Play workshop. Um, I was the first host ever. Yeah. That's crazy. And I couldn't even <laughs> anticipate because like the morning of or the morning before I hurt my neck at a stupid 6 a.m. jujitsu class. Yeah. And you've never been able to come since. No, I know. Every Hopefully. time, every time I came to Philly, you were, uh, you were on your, uh, out teaching on your own. Yes. But now the, I don't know if this is a blessing or a curse, Rafe, but the COVID has killed the traveling kettlebell circus. Okay. That was my business. So I don't necessarily mind not mm -hmm. traveling every weekend. And I think we'll open up some more edu educational opportunities 
for me to study as opposed to, you know, teaching people how to swing kettlebells every weekend. That'd be cool. That was again a little bit old anyways, you know? Yeah. I have other things to pursue. (laughs) Well, that's the thing about you. And I, you know, I always find it difficult when people ask me at the beginning of a podcast, like, tell the audience your life story and why they should care that I'm talking to you. Um, I find that uh, to be a a difficult entry to start with, but, uh, (laughs) but I figure we should background you a little bit. And one of the things that I find interesting about you is, so you've been, you've been in the fitness game for a really long time and you know, you, you were one of the early adopters of uh, kettlebells and you're one of Steve Maxwell's students and you kind of found a niche there as a, as a kettlebell guy, that's been pretty successful for you. But you've always had this broader perspective that you were interested in. I remember, you know, I was quite young coming up when I came to visit you. And I remember just looking at your library and the amount of, of fitness history, movement history, everything that you had that was going on in the back of your brain there. Um, right. Was ridiculous. Yeah, I don't do a very good job of sharing it. It's actually, Rafe, it's hilarious because I yeah. brought this in case we want to discuss this sure. in the terms of natural movement and the history of natural <laughs> movement and, and all that goodness as well. But yeah, yeah. unfortunately, <laughs> like you said, the kettlebell stuff really took off. I thought it would die uh, at some point, but it's hard to, as a professional, I'm sure you understand this. I've always wanted to go in different directions as well, right? Mm-hmm. But like my play-based workshops, they never did as well as the kettlebell workshops. Yeah. The natural movement workshops never did as well as the kettlebell workshops. And when you're, I'm a father of three, you're a father of two, correct? Three. Three, three as well. Three now. Okay. Yeah. It's sometimes you have to do, this is going to sound really materialistic, but it's like, I'm going to make this much this weekend, or yeah. I could make this much per weekend. I guess I'll do kettlebells and make this much. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and I still love presenting and working with people in person on that subject matter, but uh, I don't have the, the heart to post kettlebell workouts online anymore. <laughs> I'll leave that to the 20 year old, beautiful people that are, you know, abs and six packs and beautiful glutes and everything else like that. And I'll, I'll plant my Swiss chart and talk about natural movement with Rafe in the backyard. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Well, you can always rely on the jawline, right? You've got that. (laughs) Thank you. Go, go go to the talking head. You know, uh, you don't have to have abs to be a talking head. I guess that's true. Yeah. That's my nice German and Slavic combination. (laughs) So so, so you've been doing kettlebells for what, like 18 years? No, yeah. longer. Longer. Well, it, it, I'm sure your timeline gets blurry too, Rafe, right? Yeah. It gets blurry. Like, I don't know when Steve had those first, you showed those, me. You showed those, me. Steel, those steel yeah. ball bearing kettlebells. And I can yeah. send you a picture, Rafe, if you want to include it in, it, yeah. in any of the material. But I, I, I don't know exactly when Steve had those created. Mm-hmm. But those were my first exposure. But it had to be 2000, 2001. Wow, so, so 20 years, 20 years yeah. on kettlebells. So I can see years. why you're a little fatigued. So do you still swing the kettlebell around on a weekly basis or are you just not? I do not 100 swings it? per day. 100 so swings have, per day. Yeah, I have a real simple movement practice, if you want to call it yeah, yeah. physical practice. Um, and it's, it's you know, I wake up three miles, fast it with the shepherds. That's my... That's it's not a walk or a run? Walk. 
Yeah, okay. I don't run. I, yeah. I find, uh, so I walk, I got this from Thoreau or maybe it was Emerson, but I really, really love it. And it, it resonated with me quite well. He, he said he walked to get ideas out of his head mm-hmm. instead of into his head. And I find running is too intense for, for me to focus. Yeah. Maybe not focus is the wrong word, but for stuff to spontaneously pop out of my head, it has to be a walk for me. Now, my walk is pretty brisk. My wife complains all the time that I walk <laughs> too quickly and I actually walk in front of her. Yeah. But I like walking. I prefer walking because um, I, I think it's better for my mental clarity and, and creativity mm-hmm. to, to get those ideas to come out. Running is a little bit too intense. And if I'm going to run, to be honest, I'm not going to do a three mile run. I'm going to do 40 yards. Sprints. Yeah. Yeah. Sprints. For sure. I'm a big fan of sprints as well. Yes, you are. Yeah. I find. You know, you. I think we're about the similar body size, and I find that for me, as an explosive athlete who's taking a lot of pounding on my feet and ankles from the parkour, that yes. adding another like like long cycle. I mean, maybe maybe I could adapt myself with a proper training cycle. I did. I did the um, the math style training, the Max Aerobic Fitness from Phil Maffetone. Yes, that's the cycle. only style I would do as well. Yeah. Right. His heart rate materials yeah. is superior in my opinion. Yeah. I did that for, for like three months, one, one fall, like three years ago. And I did feel like it really actually helped me that it was very beneficial to me, but with uh, your performance or with recovery or recovery, recovery. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it wasn't going to make me faster or more powerful, it, but yeah. it just made me better able to handle the training that I wanted to do. I understand. Yeah. So you know, maybe this uh, winter I'll be able to do that again. Um, but I've been, I've been doing the bike recently, uh, to kind of achieve the same effect, but I actually irritated my Achilles tendon from biking too much, mm. which is like, did blame it on the bike, Rafe. Don't, don't, don't blame <laughs> it on the parkour or the tree running. <laughs> well, the parkour is something my body's very adapted to. Right. But uh, I was just listening to this, um, interview with, uh, Ebony Rio. Um, Todd Hargrove interviewed her and she's talking about how specifically like biking, if you do a lot of it um, and you're not prepared for it, can it irritate the, uh, the peritoneal body because you're not getting enough tensile loading through the Achilles, mm. but it's getting this, um, this repeated dorsiflexion stretch that doesn't really have the same characteristics of the kind of running you do. I, I don't completely understand the mechanism, but I was like, Oh, that sounds like what might be happening to me. That, uh, that, that's a, it's a pretty reasonable a pro uh, idea. Yeah. It's an interesting yeah. interview. Yeah. I think you'd enjoy it. I find it. I find uh, biking hurts my hips, to be honest. Interesting. It's so weird. I mean, like it's I a very think. strange movement, right? It's really not natural for us. Right. But it's very low impact, which is nice it's when true. you're a parkour athlete on top of wanting to, to, to achieve your general fitness stuff. Yeah. Okay. So you, you do a three mile walk. And three then... mile walk. And then I come home and you've been in my backyard. So you know yeah. myself. I have like a 12 foot. <laughs> rogue rack in the backyard mm-hmm. gymnastics rings free weights that type of stuff kettlebells cmbs i'm not sure if you're familiar with what cmbs are i'm not cmbs are like a i can send you a photo of these as well so rogue has them and also sornex has them the sornex version is called cmb center mass bell okay. the sornex version is donnie thompson's version and he calls them fat bells okay. so they're literally a circle but instead of having the extended hand like a kettlebell would have on the outside, the handle is on the inside. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
I've seen and these. they're very they're I find them super gentle on the joints you know I'm pretty okay. old I'm getting pretty up there in age and stuff and so I do 100 swings I do 100 standing up in base or technical stand-ups depending mm-hmm. on what uh jujitsu yeah, school yeah. come from right and I do uh 10 pull-ups that's 10 pull-ups. it and those are the minimum three mile walk those, and then I'm done. And everything else is just additional play. Yeah. And that's just to maintain a baseline of fitness. That's just to maintain a baseline. Yeah. Because I still do teach kettlebells. So I need to, you know, sharpen that edge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to keep, keep the confidence level up. It's true. And then do you play with any new sort of, uh, kettlebell patterns, juggling flows, any of that stuff? I don't. If I'm going to play with any new stuff, it's going to be with a different tool. Just because as we we spoke earlier, I've been doing this for 20 years. So it's hard for me to be like, today I'm going to do this. (laughs) Right? So I've I've recently fell in love with uh, the ropes that David Weck promotes. Right? Uh, The RMT ropes. And slush ropes, there's, there's a really cool YouTube channel and a gentleman, he calls it way of the rope, which is mm-hmm. pretty cool. And he's out in nature doing all those things. If I'm going to play with a new pattern like that, it's going to be with a different tool as well. So interesting. So what do you, what do you feel like is the benefit of the ropes? Like I've seen a lot of people like Yuri Marmerstein's gotten into him, Timothy Sheaf in the parkour community. And mm. I'm goes skeptical. back to our previous, you're skeptical. It's good yeah. that you're skeptical because I was skeptical as well, Rafe. Yeah. And it goes back to what we were just discussing. It's a really low intensity, low impact. I don't want to say low intensity. You could probably cook it up if mm-hmm. you wanted to, but I can get my heart rate almost to the Phil Mapitone level, right? Yeah. Zero impact on my joints. Yeah. You can do it artistically. You can get all these beautiful little patterns. You get the supination, the internal rotation, the external rotation. You get uh, you can do locomotive patterns. You can do all these little cool things without stressing the joints too much. Mm-hmm. I can literally do it right next to my garage and get a nice little heart rate response, active recovery response, and uh, it, you know, to be honest, I'm not I'm not a I don't move as artistically as you, Rafe. But this makes me feel a little bit artistic. It makes me feel a little bit. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, just a little bit. There's a little bit of warrior built into it. There's a little Mm -hmm. bit of, you know, overhand Mm -hmm. rights and uppercuts and that stuff you can cook in lunge patterns, lateral lunge patterns. I've seen people doing forward rolls with them. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty, but I, I, I understand your skepticism. It's if you're looking for a really tough workout, that may not be it. But if you're looking for something that's maybe a little bit lower intensity, but still has a nice little poetic edge to it, I, I think you would like them. I've been thinking about this idea of of the Pareto distribution of, of movement tasks. So right, yes. I'm a movement generalist. So I'm, you know, uh, over the last week, I went in and taught an MMA class and then stayed afterwards and sparred for a couple of rounds, you know, with a couple of guys who have fights coming up, right? So I was helping them prepare for fights. And then I went out and jumped around in the trees. I run sprints recently. You know, I've done some weightlifting recently, uh, done some acrobatics, right? I'm doing all this stuff. Yes. And, you know, there's the whole movement culture thing that's come up. And yeah, I, I, I was really into it. And then I become pretty jaded about what a lot of it is. Me too. Because the, 
interesting because the idea of the generalist is really powerful. And it's like obviously true that human beings are, are incredibly diverse movers. But what I'm seeing is that people aren't going to the disciplines that, that sort of are most, that matter most, I would say, and selecting the most valuable components of them. They're actually going in and picking out the least valuable components because those are the ones at which they can compete. So mm. you, rather than being a generalist, you're just a specialist at all of the, of the cast off pieces of other disciplines. Rafe, that's hilarious that you're talking about that because I was thinking that same exact thing in my diet. They're just, they're specialists. Yeah. These people that are movement, exactly. They are specialists. They specialize in uh, handstands Yeah. or I, ring work. And it's like, that's the, I'll just give you a personal story. I was training, mm -hmm. he's older than me and I'm, I'm 49. So 49 jujitsu player, 49 year old jujitsu player high stress job, financial guy in center city, Philadelphia. He hired a movement coach. Yeah. Rafe, three to five hours per day <laughs> of wrist, wrist prep, shoulder prep, handstand prep. I'm like, this isn't, he, he lasted about two weeks. He's like, I can't do this. That's absurd. It's absurd. But he was, he, he drank the Kool-Aid for a little bit until he actually hired a coach and then he realized this is not the type of stuff I'm looking for. Right. Yeah. Because like you said, it's a, it's a general, it's a specialist. Yeah. So, I mean, what really kind of, I mean, this is why this is coming up because of the ropes, but oh, the ropes. Okay. I really started sort of like thinking about this when everyone got into punching tennis balls. Oh yeah. Right. And what I realized was that like, I've, I've never done that Rafe, by the way. <laughs> there we go. It's one, you, one check in your, in your favor right there. Right. <laughs> I do like the training balls from fighting monkeys. I like the training balls as well. Yeah. Um, we can talk about those and why they're maybe like the rope, right? Where, where with the right utilization, they can be a yes. good tool, but yes. we shouldn't fall in love with the tool as opposed to the purpose that we put it to. Right. So well said. Um, the problem is that a boxer might box, might, might hit tennis balls as a way to refine a small characteristic, right? They know that 90% of the benefit, 80% of the benefit of their training comes from sparring and hitting the heavy back, right? And pad work. But here's the thing, like, like for us, a hobby recently said, like, you don't need to do pad work even. Like you, if you go back to George Foreman, Sugar Ray Robinson, Roberto Duran, Tommy Hearns, Thomas uh, Hagler, like none of these, Marvin Hagler, none of these guys trained on pads. That's like something that was basically invented in the 90s. And now everyone does it. But, hmm. but somehow the best boxers that have probably ever lived walked the planet didn't need this tool. So I was like, do you really need this tool? If you're coming over to become a, a generalist, can you afford to adopt a tool that, that, isn't, that isn't in the top you know, it isn't that, that, you know, the, the Pareto idea is there's 20% of, of something that gives you 80% of the benefit. Correct. Well, what's the 20% of boxing that gives you 80% of the benefit? It's not hitting tennis balls with your yeah. fists, right? right? It's, it's sparring and it's, and if, and heavy bag work because heavy bag work allows you to fill the gaps that you, 
that come through sparring because you have to limit your sparring in specific ways in order to not hurt each other all the time. Yeah. It's like, that's it. That's it. It's like, you know, um, I'm sure you like in jujitsu, you could think of this too. It's like if, if someone was a generalist and wanted to come over and, and do jujitsu, what aspects of the game should, should they focus on? Right, Rafe. So, so a few weeks ago, I did a post about two of the strongest. It was actually about three, but Yosef from Fighting Monkey was the third. So I'll leave yeah. him out of this. But two guys in Philadelphia, one is Judo Mike, yeah. Mike Ancona. No lie, Rafe, this was his conditioning. It was like right out of Vision Quest, mm-hmm. right? And Steve Maxwell would always train with this guy. And he was a killer. Yeah, He was a killer. Put a log on his back, walk up a hill, do Hindu push-ups and pull-ups, walk down the hill, sprint up the hill, Hindu push-ups, pull-ups, walk down the hill, carry the log back up. He was a killer. Yeah. Nothing technical. The other guy, this is his workout and his technique sucks. His, his, his form sucks. It's, he just does 100 sit-ups, 100 squats, 100 push-ups and 100 pull-ups. And yeah. I guarantee you, if you were to grapple with him, you may have actually met him. When I don't want to mention names too much, but when you uh, when you were in Philadelphia, you were probably in the same room as him when you trained uh, with Josh. Sure. But I'm telling you, you tie up with him. But this is the beauty, I think, of of what you're you're getting at, Rafe. That's an abbreviated program, 100 reps of four body weight movements, but that allows him to spend five to six hours on the mat because he's not doing complicated shit like punching tennis balls off of <laughs> some weird bouncy thing on their helmets. Right. Or just, just, just in general. So like when I look at the rope, that's my question is like, is this one of those 20% tools? And maybe it's a tool that like, not everything has to be one of the 20% tools. Maybe it's a right. tool that has a very specific application. It's like a, a sophisticated, intelligent mover can put this in place because it's one way to access something. That's how I feel about the, the, um, the fighting monkey ball. Like it's not a necessary tool, but it works really well because there's a lot of things that you can do with it that allow you to work on agility, evasion, and mobility. And there's Mm -hmm. lots of ways that you can play with the tool that allow you to dig into those things. But my critique of it is you don't evade tennis balls, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you, if you want the, the qualities that are being cultivated by that tool to be transferable, you need to go do something with it. Like, I think I've improved my head movement as a martial artist a lot through using the, uh, the, that ten- tennis ball, but I don't, I don't stop at the tennis ball. Like, I feel like if I, if I just dodged a tennis ball, the transfer to my martial arts would be minimal. But it's the yeah. fact that I'm going in there and mapping it really specifically to how I want to be able to fight and then going and immediately doing drills that are more specific, right? So a lot of times if I do some fighting monkey practice ball, what I'll do immediately afterwards is offense defense where I'm just working on my head movement with somebody actually trying to trying to hit me, right? Yes. And so then, yeah. then I get a much better transfer of training effect, I believe. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of, the, the question that I have about this, the, this rope is like, okay, I see a lot of people I like who, who are getting something that they like out of it. But I'm just like, okay, well, what? So it's it's low impact and it allows you to play with flow. But that, I mean, that could be a hula hoop. That could be totally. spinning poi. It could be, you know, totally. may spells. Yeah. Like, 
can let me just say a point that I think is important with the rope. I think it appeals to people that don't necessarily, I could be completely wrong with this Rafe, but I think it appeals to people that don't necessarily like exercise. And by exercise, I mean three sets of 10. <laughs> I think it's for people that like to express themselves physically and still get a workout on the side, right? But that's the yeah. byproduct. I think it's for people that like to feel the movements and feel artistic and express themselves physically beyond. For me, it doesn't feel like exercise. For me, it doesn't feel like training at all. For me, it's just like fun. And I yeah. think that's the appeal for some people, right? It's like juggling or another skill base, right? Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. I mean, and I, 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 I wrote an Instagram post about this where I was like, I, I hate exercising, right? I hate it too. I can't do it. <laughs> It's like, I, 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 I love to move, right? And I like the way that I think of, so I, I'm I have so my glad own. you said that, by the way, Rafe, thank you. <laughs> <You're welcome. laughs> yeah. Cause I'm not alone. And if people think, and if you're in our field, people are yeah. like, what? Yeah. yeah. I don't think it's, I think it's totally unnatural. I think it's crazy. Right. Do you know Tom Montjoy? I do not. He's another guy in our kind of spectrum. Primal movers on Instagram. He, um, he, he went and he's actually an anthropologist. He does masters and he went to uh, to one of the Pacific islands and he had his kettlebell and he, you know, he had his pull-up bar and, and he ran and the natives just were like, what is this madman doing? Like, why would you climb a tree when there weren't, when you weren't going up to get coconuts? Right. Right. Like who goes for a swim when you're not trying to catch fish? Like, what are you doing? Right. Um, and I think that's, that's much more representative of the natural state, but the way that I, I think about it is that I kind of divide things into, let's say, uh, movement uh, or play. Maybe play is a better way to say it. There's play, mm. there is practice, and there's exercise. Mm. So play you do for the intrinsic enjoyment of it. Yes. Practice you do because it cultivates skills that give you that give you something that you can access in your play, right? And then maybe we yes. could add training as cultivating physical qualities that are specific to what you want to do in training. But for me, exercise is just, it's just a thing that people do in order to, to get sweaty and feel sore. Yeah. And if you're not physically active in any other way, I think that's, that's great. Like, awesome, go exercise. And there's a lot of people who, who do get some kind of joy out of it. You're going to get some, maybe some endorphins, some runners high, Maybe if you're doing like a CrossFit or a foot wall or a, you know, Zumba class, you're, you're getting all this social connection and ritual that's going on. that's really valuable, but like I'm spending my physical resources in order to cultivate skills and in order mm -hmm. to cultivate qualities that support those skills and anything that just makes me sweaty, that's not, or that makes me sore. That's not taking me in a specific direction. That's like, that's like gambling to me. Like it's just wasting money. Yeah. Right. I'm with you. I totally agree with you. I was listening to Laird Hamilton speak the other day. I think it was actually on the Joe Rogan podcast. And, you know, he's a surfer and yeah. he's in the water all day long. And Joe asked him about swimming. Yeah. <laughs> like, I hate swimming. I will. Who swims for exercise? Who does that? How do you swim for pleasure, right? You swim yeah. because it's delicious to freaking swim in, in the ocean and yeah. cold water and those yeah. beautiful Washington, uh, creeks mm -hmm. and stuff right who's mm -hmm. out there doing this unless you're going to be a competitive swimmer who wants to go through that drudgery right 
Yeah. Now here's a beautiful athlete, a beautiful surfer, great at expressing himself. And he's like, I hate that. Why would you do that to yourself? Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not everybody, maybe somebody else like that's, that's, their, uh, yeah. God that's bless zen, people right? that can do it. Right. Yeah. God bless the people that can do it. Right. If I wanted to, I'm not sure Good. if you're familiar with this term, it's a term in Portuguese. It's called pelada. Have you heard this term? I have heard this term. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, I have a funny story about that, but go ahead. So it literally in Portuguese, it means naked. Mm -hmm. Like it literally means naked, the word pelada, but I think our English translation in this context, at least, would be like spontaneous play or spontaneous practice. Mm -hmm. And I think, as you were mentioning, skill development, there's tons of research in the cultures of Brazil, right? So the, yeah. the futsal, I'm sure you're familiar with futsal. It's, uh -huh. it's soccer played in, so it's, they, uh, Brazilians abbreviate everything, right? Mm -hmm. So futsi is foot. Okay. But football is football. Soccer is football, right? So yeah, they yeah. take foot and footy and then saw, which is salon, salon, which okay. is Portuguese for room. So they okay. play soccer on a smaller field. Yeah, yeah. Okay, small side soccer, basically. Yeah, perfect. They're actually doing something similar in lacrosse. One of my sons plays lacrosse now, and they call it zip lacrosse. So it's basically three, three on three, but the fields are much smaller. So they get more play time. Yeah. Yep. And there's tons of research on this now coming out of Brazil on that pelada mm -hmm. and on the futsal that, that Australians have a great term for it. Also, instead of just practice, they use the term play practice mm -hmm. and they there don't do to, to use your word, uh, from a few with Matt Thornton, mm -hmm. uh, dead patterns. They yep. have removed the agility cones. They have removed this. And what they do is they just play these beautifully enjoyable, small-sided games with one another. And that develops all the qualities that they, that these kids need, right? Yeah. And in Brazil, they play these pelada games. It's literally the kids are shoeless. Yep. Playing in some junkyard with, you know, my wife is Brazilian. So she's like, there's broken glass everywhere. There's a scrap metal yard right next to it. There's an aggressive pit bull in the yard right next to it. And these kids are playing football all day. And that's why they're so good. Yeah. Pele, yeah. Pele the famous soccer player, yeah. he played, he played with a mango. <laughs> he played with a mango yeah. because yeah. he couldn't afford a soccer ball, man. Yeah. People, people take in those cultures, uh, you see it in Africa as well. They take, like plastic bags and rubber bands mm. and they'll just stack plastic bags inside of each other and then wrap rubber bands around them in order to create a ball that they can play with. Crazy, right? So it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I just spoke at uh, the sport movement conference put on by Sean Mishka and yeah. I actually cited that paper, um, uh, the paper, uh, one of the papers on Pilata, um, which was, I'm trying to remember who all the authors were, but one of the authors was Duarte Arroyo. And okay. he was actually speaking as well. So I'm going to be chatting with him soon because he's actually getting really interested in the impact of being in nature on yes. skill acquisition, like how, Beautiful. how the context of being in nature actually uh, impacts uh, skill acquisition in movement. Um, so I'm super interested in that. So that's going to be a fun conversation. So that's, um, so let's talk about natural movement for a second. Cause I know you are, you are all prepped to tell us, tell us about natural movement. So what is the story of natural movement from, uh, from Jason, the, uh, the historian of, of, of fitness over here? Oh, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I have a sort of an amateur historian. 
Yeah. But uh, when you were here, we were talking about somebody that, who uses the brand term natural movement. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Somewhere. You know, it's just like a, it's, <laughs> it's nothing is new. Yeah. Actually, in this book also, Rafe, so it's reshaping physical education. I don't want to mispronounce her first name in German. I'm just going to say Margaret. It looks yeah. something like Margaret and then Stryker. Mm -hmm. Reshaping physical education, which is awesome. This is 1922. Yeah. And she has total, she has like four chapters written on gravity and natural movement. Yeah. Play and natural movement. She actually uses a term, which I really love. But uh, again, this is also trademarked, at least in Portuguese, natural gymnastics. Yeah. Right. So she uses those terms as well. And it, you know, it's, it's vaulting. Mm -hmm. It's, it's rolling, it's tumbling. It's all of those things that we would see, you know, uh, you do and other natural parkour individuals do as well. But written in 1922, she uses these beautiful terms like natural movement and natural gymnastics. Yeah. Yeah. I picked up that book based on your reading. What's interesting about the book is she talks, she talks a lot about, yeah, this idea of what, what it is to be natural. And, you know, um, she has an interesting description of that, like harmony in the body. Yes. You know, that's part of what we're, we're seeking is this sort of harmonious development of the body and, and how she's advocating that essentially she's advocating for, for a generalist development. Right. And that's mm -hmm. not, so again, it's more like game-based training, um, less, less drill-based, less, less specific calisthenics type base and more of a, like, make sure kids are, are running around in the woods and, and doing skiing. She talks about skiing, swimming, yeah. all that stuff. All that stuff. But also she, oh, interestingly, I think some of the ideas there kind of anticipate the constraints led approach and the uh, like ecological dynamics ideas, because she talks a lot about how we don't know why uh, a student isn't organizing the way that we want them to. Mm. And that often if we just let them move long enough, they'll figure it out. Yes. And she also talks about the idea of part practice versus whole practice with the idea yeah. being that generally we're going to get better development through whole practices rather than part practices. And so it's really, I think it's a, you know, for anyone who's interested in these ideas, it's really worth going back and taking a look at that book because yes. it anticipates a lot about kind of some of the trends that I think are happening within thinking about movement and fitness right now. Yeah. So in, in preparation for speaking with you, Rafe, I, I went back and looked at some of my highlights and this, yeah. it's, I'm sure this happens to you as well. You highlight stuff and then you go back and read the book like yeah. 10 years later and you're like, wow. <laughs> so she said, physical education should really be called, I'm not sure if this will resonate with you as much as it did with me this morning, but physical education should really be called applied biology. Absolutely. And yeah. I was like, that's, that's deep, man. That's yeah. really good. We use the word applied kinesiology all the time, mm -hmm. but applied biology takes it to a whole nother level, right? Yeah. Because kinesiology, yes, it's the study of human movement, biology, but bio is all of us. It's the whole spectrum of life, which mm -hmm. that's why we move. If you ask me, it's because we want to be a complete person, not just a mover. We want to apply this movement to make us whole in other ways as well. Yeah. Something that Ida said that I think is really brilliant is you're a human first, a mover second, yes. uh, a specialist who, who said third. That? Who said that? 
you know, oh, Portal. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I was like, that, that one's great. Yes. Um, so we got to nest are the way we think about movement within how we understand human nature. And like I wrote an article called understand conceptualizing fitness evolutionarily back in uh, 2011. Um, and, you know, I started with that quote from Dojansky, nothing in, in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. And that's mm. essentially the founding idea of evolved move play is that the fitness industry is a form of applied biology, but it hasn't experienced the Darwinian revolution. Hmm. <laughs> right. It's still in this mechanistic worldview that's very isolated from understanding the human being in a broader sense. It's like, I actually think that if you want to want to achieve the goals of the fitness industry, you actually have to understand a little bit about, uh, about anthropology and evolutionary biology and, uh, ethnography and yep. psychology and evolution psychology, neurobiology, like all that stuff actually is important. And even philosophy, which, you know, now we're, now we're asking our physical culturalists to be, become extremely highly educated people. But given that our culture is dying <laughs> physically, yes, maybe we need that. I, I agree. I totally feel we need it, Rafe, but I'm not sure if you feel the same type of, uh, I don't know what the word would be depression <laughs> you you have this vision of what the phys physical educator should be yeah i share a very similar vision i have a yeah. vision of what i think a physical educator should be and present and teach and all that but then i have neighbors rafe i'm not sure if you remember my neighborhood i live two blocks away from the elementary school mm -hmm. i have t parents that drive their children to the elementary school it's too it's a very safe neighborhood all the neighbors look out for everyone else's children yeah but they drive their children so uh, i think what happens to people like you and me and the people that we want to coach and, and develop into physical educators is we meet this resistance with i don't want to shame anyone anybody in particular but our general population is just really difficult to reach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the question people always ask me, right? Is, uh, you know, how do I convince my mom to do this? Right. And my answer is you don't, honestly, because don't. I don't think that that's actually the right. I think that you have to destroy the thing in order to make it palatable to the general populace. And that's not right. actually like once, once it's been digested to the point that it's saleable to the soccer moms at whole foods, it's not the right. thing that, that it was supposed to be anymore. Yeah. Look at yoga. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, 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 so I have I this think, model. Yeah. Which is basically that, that real social changes don't start by trying to, build an avatar of the 50th percentile, right? Or the, the median and trying to, 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 to sort of build your, um, your approach based off of it. It starts by saying, this is, this is what we think is true. And we're going to articulate it so well and so beautifully that the people who are almost where we are, are going to adopt it. And then they're mm. going to uh, articulate it and think about it in a new way 
they're going to contribute to that understanding, which is going to convert, which is going to convert that. So it's like, okay, maybe you're at the, that total edge of the, um, you know, the wave of diffusion uh, of innovation, right? You're the edge case for the fusion of innovation. It's like, well, your job isn't, if you're, if you're in the 10th of a percent of people who understand movement and fitness, your job isn't to convert the people who are at the 50th percentile. It's just to convert the people who are at 11 percentile. Yeah. Percent. And their job is to convert the next 10% for you. I yes. Think that's how it works. See, that's that, that great point, Rafe. I love our conversations. Thanks yeah. for having me on. Yeah. That's why I actually prefer working with other professionals. Mm-hmm. Because if I work with one, I'm just going to use the word general yeah. pop, yeah. right? If I work with one client, I have affected one client. Mm-hmm. If I work with one professional and have an impact on that professional, hopefully that professional can go out and have an impact on 50 clients, 100 clients, right? So, yeah. Going back to simplicity, we didn't really talk about simplicity, but I think when you brought up your mom, I think that's one thing also that we do a a disservice to is we try to come up with these complicated or complex systems, Mm -hmm. right? where all my mom needs to do is squat well so she can function in her day-to-day life and yeah. probably go for a walk. <laughs> yeah. That's, right. You know, so I have this beautiful vision of movement and I, you know, I, I'm got, got people jumping through trees and, you right. know, jumping off waterfalls and climbing and, and people always ask me like, okay, well, where, where, where do you start? Right. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's actually, it's, it's really simple. Like go for a walk in nature. That's the yes, number that's one it. thing. That's the number one thing. First thing. Yeah. Learn to like practice a little bit of breathing. That's my second thing. It's just, you don't have to sit down and meditate for 10 minutes. Just like learn the difference between, you know, stressful breath and non-stressful breath so that you can tune out, let go of the world. And you can do that during your walk, man. Yeah, exactly. You can do it together, right? Yeah. And then the next thing is like, get people spending some time on the ground. Mm. That that's it. Like you, you know, it could be an animal flow class or, you know, um, a contemporary dance class or a b-boy class, right? right. Um, or it can just be literally move your chairs out of a room and yeah. do what you need to do while you're on the ground. Uh, or garden, right? Garden, huge. Dance. Yeah. I remember growing up, I grew up in Appalachia and there was a it's, it's actually a little bit sad that they don't do this anymore. But I remember the World War, War I can't say it, World War II generation. Yeah. They would have these huge festivals and my great grandparents and grandparents would do these old Slavic dances and uh, everybody was having a great time, right? But now, unless it's in a dance club, nobody's dancing. That's one reason why I love the coordinations that... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, fighting monkey does right mm-hmm. yeah but it doesn't have to be any type of formal so, dance right have you ever heard me tell just, my story uh i've heard many stories Rafe. sorry sorry is, is no, this a, a dance about story? appalachia the the oh. appalachian experience you've heard me talk about that because it's really interesting I, what you just said i don't think so please educate yeah. me so when i was Hopefully it's a good one because yeah. you, you well, can have a, some pretty a, it's rough good, ones. It's rough. It's it's depressing, but also, oh, okay. but also, you know, I think it, it picks up on that this theme. But quick and dirty version of it is, m- when I was eight years old, 
we had a man move into our property who became my mentor and took over my education. And he was from a tiny little town right in the corner between North Carolina, West Virginia, and Virginia. So he's on the Virginia side of that, but it's called Staffordsville, which is named after his family. Okay. Um, used to be called the Irish settlement. And okay. he grew up in Staffordsville and his, uh, he took me out to visit there and I met his grandfather and his grandfather's four brothers. And these four brothers had been the son of the traveling doctor and pastor for that region. And then they all uh, formed a bluegrass band and toured the country playing bluegrass. And then they all This served. is a great story already, man. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then they all served in World War II, right? Okay. And so I'd been... I'd been told about this idea of elders as like bearers of culture and wisdom. And I'd never felt like I'd experienced it. And mm. like most people, most Americans, I had this, you know, very negative perception of people from Appalachia as kind of rednecks and uneducated. Yeah. Right. Right. And so I arrive and I meet these guys and like, you know, we drive up this dirt road and we arrive at their house and it's a stick built house that, that, uh, that John's grandfather built by hand, right? And they they make this feast and there's literally like ham that is from a pig that somebody raised, that somebody killed, that somebody cured in that family. There's trout from a local stream. You know, they right. make fry bread and they uh, like one of his aunts takes me out and we harvest sarsaparilla root and bring it back to make tea. Look at that, look at that. Right? And, and I was so impressed. And then before we had the meal, um, having, I don't know why, but I can't remember his grandfather's name right now, but, um, he stands up and he, he just quotes extemporaneously from the Bible for like 20 minutes, which was pretty, <laughs> pretty brutal, but it was like the level of depth of his understanding of the culture that he was within was so extreme. And so then they all brought out the old generation brought out music. So they played accordions and guitars and fiddles. Yeah. And these guys, like every one of these guys, up. right? Like, you know, Heinlein's um, specialization is for insects, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I've got a, you know, uh, a human being should be able to butcher a hog. I thought, I thought that was Greg Glassman, man. That wasn't Greg Glassman. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> so butcher a hog, plan an invasion, program a computer, you know, play music, you know, like everything, right? It's like, these are the closest people that I've ever come to experiencing that where it's like yeah. they were culture bearers. Like they, they knew how to, they knew how to take care of someone who's injured. They knew local medicines. They knew what was in the forest there, what was available to them. They knew how to hunt. They knew how to farm. They knew how to, to, to raise livestock. They could fight. They, you know, yeah, they were incredible wells of traditional music and, and, and so like, that's actually like key to my whole conception of what, what we're trying to do because yeah. I think like the, the idea of movement culture, I think is such a beautiful idea, but it's like movement culture is just one of the aspects of our culture that we've been decultured from. Decultured, good term. Yeah. Right. We have, we've yeah. been decultured from, from, from music, right? Yes. We've been, de <laughs> I make this joke. And it's been taken away from us yeah. as it, right? Yeah. We, and this is what has happened with the exercise and our, you know, I consider my mentor, Frank. Frank has yeah. always talked about this. We have taken, I'll just use the word movement. We have taken movement out of our own hands yep. and put it into the hands of an expert class 
Mm-hmm. Right. And we have done the same thing exactly with music. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, right? no, I said, we don't, we don't make food anymore. We leave that. We to don't make food. So somebody, yeah, right. Yeah. We don't, we don't play music anymore. We leave that to professionals. We don't dance anymore. We leave that into professionals. Like crafts, literally we don't even crafts. have sex anymore. We leave that to professionals, right? Yeah. Like the, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Like that's a, that's a joke, but it's, it's actually true on some level. Like the rate at which people initiate new sexual relationships or have sex in the relationships they're in is on a steady decline while the rate of porn consumption is going steadily up. Like we're oh literally goodness. losing access to the most, fu- like the thing that propagates the species. It's crazy, man. Like that's how disembodied we are as a culture. So Rafe, there's a, a channel on YouTube called Soft White Underbelly. Have you seen this? No, I haven't. The guys, I don't know him personally. He sounds a little bit obnoxious to me when he's interviewing these people from yeah. Appalachia. I say Appalachia, you say Appalachia, right? But I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I think it goes both ways. I'm from Pennsylvania, the cool region yeah. of Pennsylvania. So yeah, yeah. our pronunciation is probably a little bit different. Appalachia, I think. Appalachia, Appalachia, yes. Yeah. Uh, these people have nothing and it's exactly like nothing material i should say yeah which is it's exactly how you described your situation right mm-hmm. but when this interviewer and i'll send you some links have you ever thought about leaving no i have everything i need right here are you happy i couldn't be happier what yeah. the mountains call me i love the mountains and they're living in a trailer with the pigs outside with no running water they got to walk to the creek across this or as we would say creek you got to yeah. walk to the creek to get the the fresh water to take a yeah. bath in right some didn't have electricity until recent years but they were all super happy you know why because they had family and they i i attribute it a lot to actually working with our hands Mm-hmm. right yep. that's something that has been taken away De- we have oh, been yeah. decultured yeah they have yeah. taken away this so much so my wife and i disagree on a, a few things educationally about the sons but in pennsylvania we have a very we have two or three really really good technical schools yeah right and it's all about this yeah it's all about the hands and one, one of the taglines of the school is a future built by hand. And it's trying to take the education and put it back here, right? And I always use my art teachers as an example. And when we were doing a tour of the local art school, technical school, rather, I'm sorry. You know, they had auto body and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. The art teacher, they could all remember the names of their students. That's beautiful. Like that, the art teacher was like, Sandra did the pamphlets for the elementary school in 1997, <laughs> knew it, could talk about it. And I think it's because they worked hand in hand with their students and they actually created something tangible at the end of their work day, their school days, as opposed to in 1917, yeah. Bismarck did this, right? The stuff that floats around in outer space and it just in here and out there and nobody cares, right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's the a great term, thing. Rafe. We take a, our hands have been taken away yeah. from us. I don't know if we will really want it back. I bet the, the large percentage of our, our population would not want it back. 
but music has been taken, art, craft. Think about what our grandparents used to do. Mm-hmm. So crochet. And I still have the Afghans that my grandparents made for us. I still have pillows that they made by hand. Yeah. I, I, in 2016, I, I started thinking about this idea of the self-worth esteeming. And this was part of like, you know, my, my sort of meditation on these Appalachian uh, elders that I had, that I had met. I, I thought that fundamentally the the self-esteem movement was mistaken and that it wasn't wasn't working for what it was trying to do, right? That, mm-hmm. that the problem wasn't that people weren't told to love themselves. The problem was that people had had all of the aspects of the self that gave a sense of meaning or a sense of self-worth stripped out of them. That's great. That's a great observation. Yeah. So it was like we... <clears throat> do you even lift bro? Right. Uh, right. Like the, 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 I think our culture is really like, it's been collapsed into these two points, which are how much do you earn mm. and how much do people want to have sex with you? Like those are the two mm. points of value upon which someone can, can, uh, can rate themselves right. because, and it, it's a, I think this is actually a function of, of capitalism, which is not like a critique of, of, which is not to say that capitalism is evil and we need communism or socialism. It's just to say that as a system without some checks and balances, it, it doesn't, it's not actually optimized to human well-being. It optimizes for the production of capital. Right. And so you, so the thing about it is that capital is very dependent on comparative advantage. So if there's one thing that I do that I do 1% better than you, then it's better for me to spend all my time on that so that we can trade. And then, then, then the total production of goods is increased, which has some amazing effects, right? We, we live in a world that's more affluent than any world that's ever existed before us. But the problem is that if you spend all of your time on one thing, then you just become, you're like a monocrop, right? You're like soil that's depleted as you produce just soybeans. And, and that's just not what you were evolved for. And right. if you're in a tribal circumstance, like everybody finds a way to sort of be a contributing member of that community. They find the thing that they are good at. So maybe you're not the dominant, you know, hunter in the village, but maybe you, you are the best singer or maybe you're the best musician, or maybe you know where to find the, the fish, right? Like all those things become sources of self-worth. So if I think about those old Appalachian guys, it's like they had lots of sources of self-worth. They and did. I think that do. that we are we are losing out on those. And it, so right after that, um, I found Jordan Peterson and I was like, yes. okay, this guy is like, he's speaking to what I'm talking about. But as much as I love him, I feel like he doesn't fully get the hand part, right? Mm. He talks about the aspects of the heroic self and in, in his book, he talks about the motor homunculus, right? Yeah. He talks about the aspect of the tongue and the capacity to articulate things. It's like vision, tongue, and hands. Like these are the things that are so massively represented in the brain. Yeah. And so you have you have a, a description now of how we can really focus on articulating ourselves and how we can attend to problems and how we're going to do this. But where is the aspect of how we bring this into the body, how we cultivate a virtue that's in it? And it's like, 
it's the whole body, but the hand is like representational of the whole body because it's the thing that that best represents the dexterity of the human being. Yeah, true. That's right. So, so, so many things to talk about, man. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting that you brought up capitalism because I was going to discuss, I'm sure you've seen these two terms com- compared, consumerism versus... Capitalism, yeah. No, yes. Consumerism. So con- and... Well, producerism producerism interesting yeah honestly. yeah yeah so you you use the word capitalism but capitalism to me sounds a lot like consumerism mm-hmm. and the two examples you brought up money yeah which is our ability to consume right mm-hmm. and sex yeah. the ability to consume pleasure from someone else right yeah. and we have shifted from a culture of producerism yeah right into a comp- all we do is consume all day mm-hmm. we just consume passively all day yeah and uh i oh, i forget where i heard about this i think it was actually the art of manliness he had a, he had somebody on his podcast and he said many many indigenous and tribal cultures the mark of manhood is when you um you stop consuming yeah. And you when start you producing a net producer for society. Yeah. You're a producer. You're no longer consuming. You're no longer on your mother's breast milk. You're no longer, you're producing the crops as opposed to just taking the crops. I thought that was pretty deep. Yeah. I mean, that's right at the, the heart of, of Peterson's message, right? right? Which is that meaning in life doesn't come from what's what you can get. It comes from what you take responsibility for. I love it. Yeah. And the other thing, I know you're good with languages, but I always, I'm going to have to do a video or something on this. Do you know how do you say learn in Spanish? Oh. So what's our word for, so let's take our English word apprentice. That's study. That's study. So take our word apprentice. Yeah. Right? Aprendio? Yeah. Yeah. Aprender. 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 It's yeah. the same in Portuguese, aprender, yeah. mm-hmm. which is related to our English word apprentice. Mm-hmm. But when the cops arrest somebody and they take them by hand, apprehend, apprehend yes, they're all related. Mm-hmm. So the Latin based words for learn mm-hmm. are literally take by hand, yeah. aprender. Aprender. Yo necesito aprender más español. I need to learn sí. more Spanish, right? Yeah. I think Entiendo. it's so cool that the uh, the Latin-based languages, their word for learn is literally by hand. Yeah. I mean, I mean Apprentice it's, it's throughout. Is by hand. Yeah, it's throughout, right? Like if you look at, you know, in English, we say to understand something, right? That yeah. means to stand under it. Right. Mm. It's a physical, right? Or or if I say like understand. If, if, if I try to if I'm if I'm trying to explain something to you and I want to know if you if you get it, I ask, did you catch what I was trying to tell you? Yeah, it's so you much. Grasp right? it. Can I, you know, I'm having trouble grasping this concept. Yeah. What is that? I can't hold on. Yeah. So this is I don't know if you've been paying attention to my conversations with John Verveke, but we talk about this stuff quite a bit, right? Like within the cognitive science, there's this deepening understanding that cognition is is utterly dependent on motor control, right? Mm. So the way that we think is 
one of the best ways to understand what thinking actually is, is that it's like modeling out motor actions in a simulation. That's, that's deep. Right. I'm just keep talking. I'm just, yeah, yeah. I'm just picturing this. <laughs> yeah. So like, there's another Jordan Peterson point that I like too, because it, it ties into this. He says, you know, you think, and I think this is actually maybe Whitehead who said this, um, but he said, you think so that your thoughts may die instead of you. So if you imagine that, um, you know, you're a mosquito, a mosquito produces a, thousands of offspring and most yeah. of them fail. Right. But what a human being does is it imagines out thousands of actions of potential action pathways and it selects from among them. So we run a Darwinian process basically on, on actions before we get to them. And that's basically what thinking is. And so what we're, what we're doing when we're thinking is we are, we are actually in, in, in the way that we think. And if you dig deep into it, you'll find it over and over again at every level it's metaphor. And it's referring back to our capacity to, to, to interact with the world around us. And so as we become less and less connected to that interaction, it's like we're actually cutting off the source from which our mm. cognition arises. I like that. So, you know, uh, John, John Verveke, um, he's my, uh, he's the, He's the director of cognitive science at the University of Toronto. And along with Peterson, the two of them were voted the most life-changing professors at the, at the University of Toronto. You know, like it was back and forth between the two of them for, for decades, I guess. Um, and so I, I've had the chance to, 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 to talk with him a lot. And he, he gave a talk for uh, the, the summit that we did, the Embodied Movement Summit last summer about basically how the embodiment revolution and the mindfulness revolution are happening together. And they're happening at the same time for a reason because they're necessary in order to recover from what he calls the meaning crisis. Mm. And he talks about these four P's of knowing, right? Um, and those are propositional knowing, which is essentially logical and semantic representations of things, right? And then procedural knowing, which is an embodied capacity to do something. And then perspectival is kind of seeing the world through the perspective of someone who has these capacities. Or, or maybe you could think of it as mm. not just knowing how to do the thing, but knowing when and where to do the thing. Mm. And then participatory knowing would be something like knowing by being that the, the way in which you're reciprocally changed by being engaged in some process. So one way that I think about this is like, you could tell someone that a mother should, should breastfeed their child, right? When the child cries, an infant, and that's a rule, but you don't actually know how to breastfeed, how to get a latch, how to do all these things until, until you actually do it, right? It's right. turns out that it's not that easy. No. All right. So then there's a procedure, right? But then there's then there's the knowledge that like every woman has of what it's like to hear the cry of a child that is specifically telling you that it's hungry or their children. Right. Yeah. And then what it's like to feel your milk let down and all those right. things like that's perspectival. And then, right. and then there's a relationship you have with that individual child that changes you, right? You're, you're a different person because you've experienced it with that, that child. So that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's those layers. And, um, 
Like I think I think about it like um, you know, uh, I'll give you another example, maybe because my son's playing rugby right now. So okay. you know, so you might tell somebody, okay, when you see a lane open, you need uh, to cut back to go into that lane, right? So that's a rule, right? That's that's a proposition. I've, I've told you a rule for how you should behave. Um, and then there's like having the physical ability to do the cut, right? Like, what does it feel like to cut? What, what, what position should my body be in? And then there's the perceptual acuity for when lanes actually open. Mm. Does that make sense? Yep. And then there's like, who have I become through playing rugby? What does it mean to me? How has it changed me? Right. And, and what we've, what was the the sort of the the shadow side of science you might say is that science allows us to collect propositions and those propositions can be very very powerful in manipulating the world but they don't necessarily empower the individual and they don't give you a sense of meaning in life knowing the rules it's like it's like reading the menu and not eating the meal or knowing that that extra or movement is good for you and not actually yeah. doing any of it. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? yep. We all know we should move, but we don't move, right? We walk to the elementary, we drive to the elementary school two blocks away. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, going on CrossFit main site, reading the wad and then being done. Okay, right. I read it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I read it. That's enough for me today. That's enough. So, so yeah, so I think that this this is is really at the heart of what I think you're you're interested in as well right now is is getting people back into embodiment, back into um, the sense that there's something more than just you know being able to know how many calories to eat in order to achieve a certain body composition, or you know, or going through perfect technique on your kettlebell swing. Right. Yeah. Right. That's, that's procedural, right? You, I mean, once you actually have it in your body, it's procedural, but it's still not that deep. It's not deep at all. Right. And so I was listening to one of your, your interviews in preparation for this. And you're talking about like the problem you want to solve in the fitness world depth. is the problem of depth. Yeah. That's a great question, right? Yeah. What's the one problem you want to solve yeah. in depth? And depth, I think, goes back to everything that you were just speaking about. Mm -hmm. We don't have so, any depth because everything has been taken away from us. Yeah. Well, or everything of what, what was your term? Uh, self-worth. Mm -hmm. Is it self-worth? Everything yeah. that provides us with self-worth has been taken away from us. Yeah. There's no. Or we've given it away. Or voluntarily given it away for something else. Right. Because, I mean, it's amazing that we can listen to the most talented musicians that maybe have ever existed in human history, right? Like by just opening our phone. It's incredible. We can, and not only that, like we can listen to people who are like tuned to our specific tastes in a way that's like never existed in the past. This is kind of a random tangent, but I think this is interesting. I I think I think that people who grow up who grow up in the 
in the aughts and the, uh, the 20s, they're not going to have the sense of the song of their time the same way that we did, right? Like, because, because you don't listen to the radio, right? Like kids listen, like you can, you can easily self-select into listening to like this incredibly small genre of, of goth emo industrial punk. And, you know, and there's like, you know, 5,000 other people on the internet who absolutely love it. And all you listen to is that, right? Right. Like I listen to a lot of, 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 uh, of Americana music that like nobody else knows about. Right. Right. Like I, I couldn't sing a bar of, you know, WAP if my life depended on it. I don't even know who WAP is. <laughs> WAP was the most popular song on the radio in 2020. It stands for wet A S S P U S S Y. Yeah. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm glad I don't know what that is. <laughs> no, no. Popular culture has, has taken a deep dive now that it doesn't have to serve so many different subcultures, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it, I, I don't know. So that's just a, an interesting tangent, but we, you can see this is like really beautiful in a certain way that, that we have this capacity. It's like, I like, I got really into Chris Stapleton recently. You know who Chris okay. Stapleton is? No, sir. Okay. He's a, he's a country Western artist who, um, his most famous song is called strawberry wine. Okay. And, um, it's, it's basically just to the tune of at last by Etta James or no, it's but to the tune of I'd rather go blind by Etta James. Okay. Right. So you have this country Western artist who's actually like really, really deeply influenced by soul. So like he clearly studied a lot of Al Green, a lot of Otis Redding. Right. So he, he plays with his voice in a way that's very atypical for country Western. So I love soul music and I love country Western. So I found Chris Stapleton. I was like, Oh my God, this is the stuff. That's interesting. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, who else has done this? So I like started looking and I was like, I couldn't find anyone. And then I found this one artist, Charlie Crockett. And he's like, he's literally made albums that are country Western albums and made albums that are like rhythm and blues soul albums. And I was like, Oh man, this is my jam. I'm listening to nothing but Charlie Crockett for a month. Right. Um, and like nobody else knows who this guy is. No. Right. <laughs> At least in your world, there's probably yeah. a cult I'm, out there that's there, a Charlie Crockett cult someplace, yeah, right? There is. There is. So that's like, that's cool. Um, but on the other hand, like, there's so, so like, tr- music is so deeply representative of tribe. Like, it is yeah. like one of the most powerful signals. And, when you don't have music and you don't have pop culture and you don't have stories that are held in common between people, it's like you're, you're cutting away all the common ground. Yeah. That's um, uh, just to use my example of the, the festivals in my old town. It, yeah. it brought, it brought the whole town together. It yep. brought the whole town together and you would, that would never happen in my little suburban town now. No, ever. No, we and, and there's zero. I, it, I'm going to sound like an old grouchy guy here, but there's absolutely zero depth in most modern music and pop culture too. Yeah, it's like look at my ass, look at my ass, look at my ass. Who cares, right? You know. So I don't know if you like John Cougar Mellencamp, but 
I, I say, look at these lyrics, you know, just listen to these lyrics. He's talking about walking along the fence of his grandfather's farm hand in hand and how the farms are being taken away. Yeah. This is, that's a moral. Hold on to 16 as long as you can. Changes will come around real soon. Make us women. And then Jack and Diane. Yeah. Yeah. Now compare that with, I don't even know. What was it? WAP? <laughs> yeah. Wop. Hardy B. WAP. <laughs> I mean, th that's one of the reasons why I like country Western music is because I feel like it's, very There's much a storytelling. Depth. It's a very There's much a storytelling genre. It's like you'll hear a wider variety of stories. My dog died, right? My <laughs> woman left me on Tuesday, that type of stuff. That's also cliche. There, there's there's that, but it's like, you know, one of my favorite songs recently is a song about, um, it's called Keeping the Wolves Away by Uncle Lucius. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's about- I watched that know, video on YouTube, yep. Yeah, he's, he's talking about how his- his father, you know, was injured in a accident in an oil refinery and how he worked through overcoming these injuries so he could keep food on his children's table. And then now it's his job to do the same thing for his dad as he's, you know, that type of stuff is, is more meaningful to me. Right now. Totally. It's I, more meaningful to the human animal, I believe yeah. as well. Right. It's interesting though, because I'm, I'm told uh, like, I, I just, it doesn't work for me for whatever reason, but I'm told like a lot of, there's actually a lot of really powerful storytelling in hip hop, right? So there's the super popular stuff that's not really there. I don't buy it. <laughs> Maybe it's because we're, you know, not to bring race to it yeah. too much, yeah. but maybe it's because we're straight white males. Yeah, maybe straight white cisgendered males. Um, yeah, and we don't have the same struggles as maybe uh, uh, I was, 50 cent or uh, yeah just passed away the, there's, there's 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 different parts of hip-hop like um there's a beautiful breakdown of the song hey ah by outcast yes right hey ah is a really interesting so song. outcast is talented and i and they are good storytellers i think yeah so the, the song hey yeah. ah is a is is really interesting because it's like it's very meta right because he's he he puts together this very upbeat very like danceable song and then he That's tells this very sad he tells this very sad story about how we're unable to keep relationships together. And then he tells the audience, you're not listening to me because you just want to dance. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So like the lyrics are, are talking about one thing. The music is taking you in another direction. And then he's pointing out that you as the audience aren't actually paying attention to the lyrics. That's cool. I'm going to have to pay more attention to that song. Right? Yeah. So that's Miss, a cool Miss song. Jackson is a great song. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a that's beautiful a great story. story. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's Kendrick Lamar. Um, people really love him. I I don't enjoy the sound of his voice, but someone was pointing out this song "Royalty." Um, the lyrics of it are basically about how you have the entire depth of of human experience within you, right? I've got betrayal in my DNA. I've got all these things in my DNA, and so he's it, like a lot of rap is just sort of like a, a, or the rap that I grew up with is very much like, I call it alpha male posturing music. Yes. And I love it to lift heavy weights too. I broke like every deadlift record I ever broke to DMX, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, DMX is good. <laughs> but uh, mm -hmm. but, but mm -hmm. there, are, there are other layers to it, right? So, and I, I can't speak to it, but, uh, but that, that, the, the way that that, that story was broke down, if you look at the lyrics of, uh, of Royalty by, um, 
by Kendrick Lamar, you get this deeper level of storytelling as well. But yeah, I think to, to, to move on from that, I think that you see it also in like movies, like all the Avengers movies, all the, uh, all the superhero okay. movies. Like they're we all. I don't know how you feel about that, man, but we don't need another superhero movie. <laughs> no, we don't. I... Please stop with that <laughs> stuff, man. Please stop, right? I remember another being... Hulk movie? Seriously? <laughs> I remember being like 16 years old and uh and like all it was like i was interested in star wars and i was interested in the lord of the rings and i was interested in um in x-men and it was like all of a sudden all the stuff that we had hoped would be like why aren't these things made into movies it was like they all started coming out and it was like so exciting and then a lot of them turned out to not be very good and right. i was like oh well actually the books are better anyways but um we hit this point where it was or like I, like i hit this point a few years ago i was like i don't I, I don't want to ever watch another superhero film. Like I, I, like, I don't, I don't go. And I have, yeah. I have an eight-year-old. <laughs> my wife will take him to the movies with another couple and I don't go. Yeah. For me, Dar the Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan, Batman, that's the last one that we ever needed. It, 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 it fulfilled the genre for me. I mean, I'm sure they could make another good one. Uh, apparently Logan was good. Joker was interesting. Joker was very interesting. It's not a superhero movie, but it's, yeah from the universe it. but um but my, my my point in that is just that it's another place where it feels like our culture is sacrificing depth mm -hmm. we're not we're not trying to to tell interesting stories anymore no they just want to make their millions with the summer movie and and move on until 2022 2023 right mm -hmm. at least that's the way i get it yeah that's how i feel about it for sure so <clears throat> after the diatribe on, uh, on pop culture, what does it mean to you to pursue depth in physical culture? That's a, that's a great question. So I think depth could be unique to everyone as an individual. Mm -hmm. I was actually thinking about doing this. I, I, I know you like words and, and I really like words. And, and uh, I was gonna do a video on this word authentic. Mm-hmm and uh, the word author. There so author and authentic is the same root, right? Yeah. And to answer your question about death, depth is, I think we need to be authentic with our own approach to, to human movement. For mm -hmm. example, in the fitness industry, let's go back to walking. You and I started this conversation about walking. Mm -hmm. To me personally, there is nothing, nothing deeper than a walk in nature. Yeah. Evolutionarily speaking, just the, I, I don't think there's anything deeper. The information I get from this world, from the outside world, my inter, interior world, it's, it's all there. And uh, I think humans were made to walk much more than we were made to run or much more than we were made to do anything else really. Um, and I think it's a, to answer your question about depth is I think we have to do a good little job of finding out, well, it's a great question. I think we have to do or have to find what is deep to us mm -hmm. and not what is deep to that expert class of individuals. 
just to reach some other metric that may or may not actually be important to us. They may be important for some type of health outcome, but in, t- if, in terms of talking about the person rate for the person, Jason, that, that spark that's inside the body and not the cholesterol, I think we have to put that expression back into our hands and take it out of the expert class. And to me, that is deep. Like grappling, I'll grapple all day. Walking, I'll walk all day. Swimming for pleasure, I'll swim all day. Have me do a wad. <laughs> there's no depth in wads for me. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that there's no depth for wad, in a wad for someone else. Yeah. Right? And that person that loves those wads would find walking probably boring. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I, I don't know. It's hard, to, it's hard to imagine that, that there's any human being that exposed to walking in nature isn't going to start attuning to the value of it. I would that, hope not. That if you're, you know, you think, you think train so, your attention properly. I have a 10-year-old that, that lives on our street. She's afraid yeah. to go for walks because she, mom has sort of brainwashed her into insects. Oh God! And, but uh, I mean, that's not you know, that's not to say that she can't though. That's to say that someone has a the barrier has been erected. I'm doing my best, Rafe. I'm doing my best. I I had this realization a few years ago that so I started doing parkour, and I grew up in the woods running around. But I yes. started doing parkour, and I actually initially can't imagine how I would do parkour in the woods. But I want to because I. I want to connect my practice to nature mm-hmm. and I ask my friend, Dan, Iboni, um, how do I start doing parkour in nature? And he says, go into the woods, start running. You'll figure it out. <laughs> so I walked to the woods and started running. <laughs> I, I found a, a big fallen dug fir and I, and it was on a slope. And so I, I go down it. And then as I get off the slope, there's all these, vine maples and I jump into the vine maples and start climbing from vine maple to vine maple. And I had done a ton of that exact stuff as a kid. So it was like immediately back to the mind of a child. And I was like, Oh, I fell in love with this place. Right. Um, and that's Whatcom falls, right? I just happened to walk into Whatcom falls, which is where the climb through the waterfall is that people see in my videos and the cliff dives mm-hmm. and the fallen logs mm-hmm. and all this stuff. So it's a rich, rich environment. Um, so now I, I start turning in nature and then I go to Seattle and I start turning in the trees and I find these amazing trees and I'm like, well, what are, what are these trees? Cause I am not used to seeing trees that do this. And it turns out they're actually the third most common tree in, in, in the Northwest, the Western mm. red cedar. And I, I, uh, I'm like, well, why are they like this here and not somewhere else? So then I like study up on Western red cedars and I learned that, that they, they, what's called crown from the bottom, they shoot out limbs from the bottom mm. if there's sufficient light available. So then, you know, then, then I know something about Western Red Cedars. And then like over time, I, I get to know all the trees that I like to move in. And then I get to know something about them and why they form. And it's like, well, it has to do with the sun that's available and the water. And now like the mind of a tree almost, or the, the way of being of a tree, the, what matters to a tree starts to matter to me. And I start to understand it on like a deeper level. And so I start getting this curiosity for, for nature and I'm, I, I end up having a, like a panic attack and not being able to train normally. So I'm just walking in nature every day as a replacement for it. I started having the sense that like I was blind 
that like I didn't know what most of the plants in my local mm. area are mm. or what they provided to the local animals or how people would traditionally use them. And so I had the sense that that the land around me was full of stories, but I couldn't read them. It's true. And, and so I think that most people, when they walk through nature, they see a wall of green and there's no, there's no uh, articulation of what's happening within those. And so I started to think of this as like imagining someone who is illiterate walking through the library of Alexandria. Yeah. It's like all this stuff is available to you and you're blind to it. So it's, it doesn't, it doesn't inform you, but if you, if you had the capacity to understand, it would be the profound and the stories that are written into the land are the most fundamental stories or the, the stories that we evolved to read. It's like writing probably evolves from tracking. Mm. right our capacity to symbolically represent things is is about this capacity to look at the ground and see see a what print the meaning see, of a print yeah. is. and um yeah and so that 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 started me asking like how do i know that better and i think that someone who knows that someone who's attuned to that is going to have a more meaningful experience of walking through nature. So if you take some kid who's 12 years old and who gets to play hyper stimulating video games all the time and is on hopped up on sugar and caffeine all the time. Um, and you plop them down in the middle of the woods and say, Hey, you know, this should be fun. They're not going to find it fun. Right. But that's not because there's something inherent to their personality, which prevents them from attuning deeply to nature and, finding great value in it. It's because their, their perceptual system hasn't been attuned yeah. to the information. And so it's there's been taken away from them. It, yes. Because there's an inherent drive that all children have to interact with nature. I agree. Yeah. Do you watch alone Rafe? <sighs> no, I, people have been telling me to watch this recently. Yeah, lots of people have telling me to watch this. You know, I try, I try to be a good dad and educate my sons and uh, just about, you know, broad topics. But season six, there was, there was this gentleman who killed the Wolverine with a machete. He actually <laughs> ended up he, he actually ended up winning. So he killed a moose. Right. And yeah. he did everything that he should have done properly. Like he put yeah. the moose up on these big stilts. So no, no other predator could come, yeah. but this Wolverine kept like crawling up the thing and eating all of his fat. He's like, yeah. I just lost 3000 calories of fat. I need it for the winner. So he can't, he corners this Wolverine and kills the freaking thing with a machete. Right. Wow. And he wins. I forget what the bounty was at the end of season six it was like $500,000 or, or, or a million dollars. Right. But maybe it wasn't a moose. It was some, something large like that, but he comes home and he tells his wife, I killed a Wolverine with a machete. Mm -hmm. yeah. And she smacks him on the chest. Like, you are a wild man, right? And yeah. he's like, oh, ho, 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 shucks, shucks. He's so happy and she's yeah. so happy and they're elated. And, uh, and I'm always like, that guy at the end of the day was so happy he killed a Wolverine and his wife was so happy he killed it. He actually ate it. He had the skull right mm -hmm. on this little yeah. tent. 
compared to, and my, you know, there's people in my life that think I'm a dick because I make these type of comparisons, but compare that with the guy that said, today I sent some emails. <laughs> yeah. Right? This yeah. guy was out in nature. He killed a moose with a bow and arrow, mm-hmm. right? Lived alone for six months above the Arctic Circle, killed a predator that was stealing his bucket of fat and came home with a million dollars as opposed to, today I sent some emails. In an, and I, maybe I am a dick, but I bet if we want to go back to that conversation of depth, and experience the whole freaking spectrum of being a, a freaking human, that guy that killed that Wolverine is on a whole nother level than the person that's in that incubator all freaking day, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the word that, that you know, when you're asked that question, like, what's the one word, right? Yeah. The one word for me is meaning. Meaning is good. Yeah. Because fundamentally, it could actually be synonyms, probably for at some point. Yeah, because what I talk about a lot is deep, right? Yeah. <laughs> I also I use that word deep all the time, like a deep knowledge of self, deep uh, right. connection to nature. That word comes. I use up that word also. Yeah, I use that word also. I actually use deep. I'm not sure if you do, but I yeah. use deep as a synonym for deliberate. Interesting. Yeah. So Maybe. in my system, I use four things. I use deep practice, deep yeah. play, deep rest. And yeah. the fourth one is deep nature. Yeah. Where some people, my term deep practice is deliberate practice, but deliberate, I don't think that's a very good term. So depth means that you're, yeah, it, it's hitting you on multiple layers, right? It's like mm. you can listen to a song and you can dance because it's fun and upbeat, or you can listen to a song and it can be like the world changed for me because of that song. Right. Like uh, there's a song called Mother by uh, Brandy Carlisle. Oh, Brandy Carlisle. I thought you were saying Brandy Carlisle. No, okay. no, no. <laughs> but it's about the experience of being a mother, right? The first thing that you took from me were selfishness and sleep. Right there. Right. <laughs> that's a story. <laughs> that's Jeez. that's that's the beginning of the song, right? And like the every first woman thing you I, took from me was selfishness and sleep. Yeah. That's beautiful. Every woman I've shared that with who's had a child has cried. I'm sure. Right? What's the name of it? It's called Mother. And who's the yeah. uh, the the Brandy Carlisle. Brandy Carlisle. I'll right? I'll have to look that up. So like that, that's a different level of depth, right? It it takes you totally. into a perspective, a perspectival experience of what motherhood is like. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I mean by deep, and 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 I think that's that depth is is something we're looking for, and like fundamentally, I think. We're looking for a, a deep reconnection to ourselves, actually. Like, I think that we are actually blind to a lot of what, what we are. And we're sort of operating this very shallow interface with the world. And there's all this underlying aspect of the self that's not, that's not, that's not integrated. Part of that's the body and part of that's the mind and they're interconnected. So it's like, we think we need a movement practice and a mindfulness practice, and we have to integrate them. You know, we have to see how they interact. And then we need to connect deeply to the natural world, nature connection. We yeah. need to connect deeply to other human beings, the community. It's like, those are the four, the four pillars. Um, so, so that's, that's, that's where we think you derive meaning from life is those connections. And then a sense that you're cultivating a self that you would admire, that you're becoming a more heroic version of yourself over time. Mm-hmm. So there's the being in the moment and the thing that you're becoming, um, and obviously they, they interact, but that's, 
that's the model that we've been we've been playing with. So that's yeah. I don't. I don't I've lost my question, but uh, <laughs> that's the. So idea. you were just saying your word for depth is meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And I said they were a. Uh, yeah. They yeah. Probably be used as a synonym at some point or in some mm -hmm. context. Yeah. So that's that's fundamentally what I think. You know, I, I've told uh, I've told John that I think that what's behind evolving play is essentially. Um, essentially it's an effort to reunite philosophia with gymnasia because that's great man yeah the philosophers began the philosophy began in the gymnasia of ancient greece it began with people who are deeply steeped in in physical practice and if we go into the east and we look at uh, gung fu and tai chi and sumo um, all of these things were deeply connected to Taoist, Zen, Buddhist, Shinto practices. Right? So who uh, who said this, Rafe? That uh, there's more wisdom. So go back to philosophy. Yeah. There's more wisdom in your body than in all of your philosophers. I think it was yes. Nietzsche. Nietzsche, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we can't we can't cultivate wisdom. We can't love wisdom if it remains a simply propositional. Uh, playing with, with, with semantic, semantics and logic. Right. Do you know, uh, Daniel, the Italian author, Daniel Botticelli, I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing no. that Not on familiar. the warrior's path. No, he was always on Joe Rogan. Also, he's a martial okay. artist, but, uh, he talks about that. And like the first four chapters is about what type of philosophy can I get from a monk that is mm -hmm. totally withered away. Right. Yeah, like slumped shoulders, fat, whatever, right? No, you need to learn from these people that are still have a good, robust physicality to them, right? Mm -hmm. We want to, we want to unite it, right? Where there's lots yeah. of beautiful athletes who are terrible people too, right? Oh, it's totally true. Yeah, right. let's not let's not deny that. Right. <laughs> um, and and then there's Stephen Hawking, right? So, if you're, you know, <laughs> this is true. There are more than one paths to the, the top of the mountain, and and every in my in my opinion, every transformative practice is also a trap. It's a place in which you can become self satisfied, or there's a shadow side of it that can take you in the wrong direction. Um, and so it's really in the ecology of practices and having clarity about your why that you are uh, that we that we can achieve the positive transformation without getting falling into the traps. Right. So um, it's about time to that we need to, to wrap up um, for today. It was a wonderful conversation, Jason. Yeah, thank you, Rafe. Thanks for having me on. Always great talking, my friend. Absolutely, yeah. It One day we'll like have to talk in person. It's been a while, yeah. yeah. Been One day we'll long. have to talk in person, move in person. Yeah, we'll come. Do a come little out, aliveness training. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah. Uh, so for folks who are interested in learning more about you, want to come to, what are you doing? Like, I know you're kind of, in in flux in between things but you have a new project totally in flux so my my new newest thing would be something that i'm calling the physical creative mm -hmm. if you just google the physical creative i would come up or okay. physicalcreative.com that is the website it's also jason c brown uh, mm -hmm. dot tv just my website there and it's not it's more it's about using our physicality exactly what we were just speaking about rafe yeah the whole human spectrum as opposed to exercise mm -hmm. i can speak about exercise but it'll be literally about one percent 
of what yeah. we actually do. It's about those four elements. I call them the elements of the deep art, mm-hmm. right? The elements are practice, play, rest, and nature. Yeah. And trying to combine all four of those to make a more creative and alive human. Beautiful. So, more creative yeah. and alive humans. That's what we're. I'm we're trying, all about. my friend. I'm trying. But, you know, sometimes it falls on deaf ears. So that's why I'm glad there's people like you alongside me. Thank you. Uh, trying to meet the, uh, get our messages out there. Absolutely. Awesome. So, yeah, we'll talk again soon. I hope to see you soon. Excellent. Thank you. Hey, you reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up and join a part of our membership community. If you can join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve the Play podcasts. But adios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.